Uh, I have never been to Athens. Uh, in fact, I've only ever once been to Greece, uh, but that was on a geology field trip when I was at university, and because we were mainly looking at fault lines and earthquake zones, uh, we really didn't see much civilization at all. In fact, the most interesting human spectacle that we saw was one day uh, when we were at the base of a cliff uh, looking at some of the rock features and we heard a noise above us and looked up to see a man fly-tipping his fridge freezer over the edge. It was obviously quite heavy because he was having to sort of walk it uh, bit by bit and we were at the bottom so we just saw it gradually appearing over the top of our heads. Anyway, you will search your Greek phrase books in vain for please don't drop your fridge on my head. Uh, And anyway, I I think he couldn't hear our shouts, so we scattered in every direction and before this whopping great thing uh, came and smashed to bits where we'd just been. So if you want to know where to dispose of Greek white goods, I'm your man. Uh, But for Athens, uh, you really will need a guidebook. Uh, Fortunately, uh, the good thing is that guidebooks are easy to come by. Uh, Athens expects to welcome uh, over 11 million visitors by the end of this year. I guess some of them are sitting here, but there's just a lot to see. The Parthenon, the Acropolis, the beauty, the art, the statues, the temples. This is the home of Homer and Socrates, of Plato and Aristotle, uh, the birthplace of theatre, of philosophy, of democracy, of the Olympics. There's so much that is simply breathtaking. And that's today. Imagine how much more impressive They would have been 2,000 years ago when all of that fantastic architecture was in mint condition and when Athens truly was the cultural capital of the world. That's the Athens that the Apostle Paul found himself in as he was waiting for some friends to travel to join him. And I guess as we would, he took the opportunity to go and see the sights, to look around this city. And as he stood on top of the Acropolis looking down, as he saw the beauty and the art and the statues and the temples, he was deeply moved. But moved not by wonder, no, he was deeply distressed. Uh, You might want to look for yourselves at what it says. Do turn with me to that reading we had earlier on. It's on page 1113. And when you get there on the right-hand side, verse 16... It says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. You see, in spite of all their great achievements, in spite of their deserved cultural renown, this was a city full of people who did not know God. And that is the worst thing that he could imagine for them. Oh, they were religious, as Paul walked around, he he was seeing a city dripping with religious idols. Uh, The great temples of Athena, the goddess of wisdom. The temple of Hephaestus, the god of industry. See, I've been reading my guidebook. But it wasn't just the architecture. No, it was those snatches of conversation that he overheard as he passed people in the streets. This was a city full of people, verse 21 tells us, who spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They were religious. They liked nothing more than religious conversation. But for all that, they didn't know God. They were clueless. And at times they even admitted it. So much so that they'd even set up an altar to an unknown God. 
there in capitals at the bottom. And so Paul is distressed. He's concerned for them. He sees that for all their religious fervour and interest, they're living in total ignorance. That's the word he uses in verse 34 for them. Ignorance. You know it's serious when someone stands up in the middle of a city dedicated to the goddess of wisdom and tells people they're living in ignorance. And please remember, these were sophisticated, intelligent people. People not so different in the things they thought than the people of Sheffield today. Up in verse 18, we're told that Paul was cornered by a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. I looked them up. Uh, Epicureans said that there was no God. Uh, The aim of life was to live for pleasure, to live for the moment. Anything goes. Whatever makes you happy, eat, drink and be merry. Doesn't that sound familiar? I don't know if you watch Dragon's Den. It's a TV program where a group of wealthy businessmen and women uh, decide if they'll invest in fledgling companies. Uh, One of the dragons is Duncan Bannatyne. And he said this, you only live once. If you don't enjoy it, it's your fault. Nobody else's. That's very common today, isn't it? It might be just what you think. If it isn't, I guarantee that there are people you know who think like that. Oh, the other group, the Stoics, were a bit different. Uh, They taught that people should be self-sufficient, independent, that happiness was a state of mind, uh, not achieved through external pleasures, but instead through inner contentment. Uh, Or if you want a modern equivalent, then listen to these lyrics of Mariah Carey's song, Hero. Uh, If you're a fan of X Factor, then I'm pretty sure you'll have heard this being murdered a few times in recent weeks. This is how it goes. There's a hero if you look inside your heart. You don't have to be afraid of what you are. There's an answer if you reach into your soul and the sorrow that you know will melt away. See, pleasure-seeking and self-sufficiency, that was them. And that's us too, isn't it? So what would the Apostle Paul have made of a week's stopover in Sheffield? What would he have seen if he wandered around? It's true, he wouldn't have seen grand temples dedicated to Greek gods. Uh, But what would he find in their place? Uh, If he went to our city centre, he would find that most of our buildings are shops dedicated to consumerism. Uh, He'd find impressive architecture, but it's on our high street banks, dedicated to preserving our wealth. Uh, If Paul caught a bus up to Hillsborough or or down to Bramall Lane, he'd see great stadia, but dedicated to football teams. Or if he wandered along Western Bank, he'd see the great lecture halls of the university dedicated to wisdom and learning. Aren't those our idols? The things we look to for for happiness, for security, for meaning? Back then in Athens, they had a God for wisdom, a God for business, a God for love. We've got rid of the religious trappings, but our desires are still the same, aren't they? Education, wealth, relationships. And although we haven't set up an altar to an unknown God, the reality is that when it comes to God, we share their uncertainty. I don't know how much thought you've ever given to to God, but my experience from talking to people is that We begin our sentences saying things like, uh, I think God is, dot, 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 or 
I hope that God would be, dot, 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 phrases which, whatever follows them, show that certainty is the one thing we lack. True knowledge escapes us. We are ignorant. And so if Paul were to tour around Sheffield, I think he'd show the same distress for us that he showed for them. And he'd have the same desire that people for whom God is unknown would come to see him as he really is. That our ignorance would be replaced by knowledge. And that's why when he speaks to them, his message is a simple one. Uh, You can see it in verse 18. He was preaching about the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. You see, into this sea of ideas about God, in walks Jesus. Jesus, who is God on earth, as Rob was saying to us earlier on. And who says to us, if you want to know God, look at me. Into a sea of ideas about life and happiness and meaning, in walks the God of resurrection. Jesus, the living, resurrected God, one who has defeated death. You can't get more life than this. And he says to us, if you want answers, then come to me. That's why in verse 23, when Paul was invited to speak to a large crowd, he started like this. What you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And you can just imagine them drawing closer to the edge of their seats. Could this be it? If you're really interested in knowing God, and if you're here today, then I take it that you are. Well, then this is what the real God is like. And what's he like? Well, look at how he starts. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. You see, the first mistake we can make is to think that we determine where God can go. In Athens, they thought that their gods lived in the temples they had built for them. And of course, that meant that when they were in the temple, they showed him due reverence. But when you weren't there, you were free to ignore them. Plus, of course, they had so many gods that each one only covered a a small aspect of life. The god of wisdom, the god of the sea, the god of love. I wonder if up until now some of us have thought about God in that way. As someone perhaps limited geographically, perhaps into church buildings like this today. So that when we come to church, we don't mind thinking a little bit about him, but elsewhere it wouldn't occur to us. Or maybe we think that God is limited in our lives. We decide how much airtime we will give him. We decide the areas and aspects of our lives which we might allow him to influence, and also the areas where he's definitely not allowed. I can think of a woman I met a few years ago now. She was coming along to a Christianity Explore course uh, that was running in the church that I worked for at the time. About halfway through the course, she spoke to me one day and she was very honest. She said that she was finding the course interesting. She'd been surprised as she started looking at Jesus. But she'd started to realise what it would mean for her to become a Christian. And one thing was that she would have to let go of her hatred, her word, of her ex-husband. And she just wasn't prepared to do it. You see, she wanted God on her terms. She wanted God to stay in the temples that she built for him. 
And so gently I told her it can't work like that. Because God is Lord of everything. He is in control of everything. He is Lord, he is in control because he made the world and everything in it. So it may be that up until now you've tried to confine God. uh, Perhaps confine him completely out of your life, denying that he's even there. Perhaps just allowing him a tiny look in into your thinking and your life. But it doesn't make sense. It can't be right. It, It doesn't work like that. Not when we see Jesus. Not when we realize who he is. That he is the one in charge of everything. He is the one in charge of me. He rules and I don't. So if I'm going to know the real God, I'm going to have to realize that he is in charge. But what else can we learn about this? The real God. Well, let's read on. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Oh, now this is one way in which the real God is so much better than all those false gods that we rely on. Because if we, if we decide that we're going to look to relationships or money or success as the key to life, we'll soon find that we're going to have to work very hard just to prop them up. So I can think of someone who thought the key to life was being in a relationship. Without that, she couldn't be happy. And so when one relationship ended, immediately she was on the lookout for the next, in a way anyone would do. Or it might be that we put our trust in money, in our savings, our bank balances. But the problem is money doesn't grow on trees. And especially in a time of global credit crunch, we soon see that those share certificates and pension plans aren't so reliable after all. And so our emotional energy gets tied up and we have to work harder and longer. Or if it's success that will give us our sense of identity and value, the trouble is that the job is never finished. As soon as we've achieved one goal in life, the joy and fulfilment we get from it soon starts to fade. And so we have to set new targets and work hard to achieve them. And then on it goes again and again relationships, money, success, those are gods that you need constantly to serve just to maintain them. But the real God isn't like that. He doesn't need us. Remember, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. No, he doesn't need us. We need him. He doesn't owe us. We owe him. As verse 25 says, we owe him our life and breath and everything else. I may surprise you, you might be sitting here today thinking that God is either not there at all, just a figment of our imagination, or or if he is there, then he's a long way off. And that if you've got through the past 20, 40, 60 years without him, well then you can probably manage the rest. But God has not been far away. And you haven't been managing without him. No, he has been sustaining you every moment. Every breath that you breathe, you breathe because he allows it. And everything that you enjoy in this life has come from him. We need God. He he doesn't need us. He sustains us. But so often that's not the way we think of him. We think that we've done enough to impress him, to earn his favour, when actually we owe him everything. 
Oh, we're, we're building up then our picture of this, that the real God, the God who steps into our world, this resurrection God, he's the God who made us, he's the God who sustains us, he's the God who rules us. But have you ever wondered why? Why did he bother? Well, have a look at verse 27. It's just over the page. It is an amazing thing. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Why does he do it? He's done it all because he wants us to seek him. It's not that he's far away, he's very near. In verse 26, just before, he's determined the whole course of history so that we can know him, which means that God planned for you to live in Sheffield, and he planned to bring you along to church today all because he wants you to know him. Isn't that kind? And yet what do we do? What's our default? We prefer ignorance. Uh, Literally, we'd rather ignore the truth. We'd rather turn our back on God. We'd rather think that we call the shots, that we rule him, rather than admit that he is Lord. We'd rather look to other things in life, even though we know they can't deliver. And when we do think of God, well, we just make up our own ideas about him. We build up our, our sort of pet God. A bit like that Build-A-Bear workshop at Meadow Hall. Have you seen that? Uh, you go in and, and you create a personalised teddy bear. Uh, you can even record a message into it so that it says exactly what you want it to say. Uh, my daughter Emma hasn't heard of it yet. Uh, long may it continue. But that's what we do with God. Uh, we just invent bits here and there so that we have this cuddly teddy bear God in case we ever need him. And all the while the truth is nagging at us that for us God is unknown. We aren't sure. And the things we try and substitute in his place don't last and don't work and don't deliver. Because we haven't yet turned to face the real God. This real, living, life-giving, resurrection God that we see in Jesus. And if that's where you are, then today God says to us, time's up. Time's up. Have a look with me at verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Please notice that this isn't me commanding you. It's not even the Apostle Paul commanding you. No, this is God commanding you. It's between you and him. And although he is commanding you... Remember, this isn't the overbearing command of a tyrant. No, it is the loving command of a concerned father. Uh, like the stop I might shout out to my one-year-old son when he's managed to get the scissors in one hand and an electricity cable in the other. Now, God commands all people to repent. It's a clear instruction, although one that you will want to think carefully about. He commands us to turn from our ignorance and turn to Jesus. And he gives us a compelling reason. As it says here, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. You see, this is urgent. Our time is up because one day we will stand before Jesus. Jesus. 
God has appointed him as our judge. And if we have lived our life ignoring God, choosing ignorance over knowing the real God, then we will receive justice. And we will be removed forever from God and from all the benefits of his sustaining hand. It's what the Bible calls hell. And it speaks of it with no glee, but pleading with us to avoid it at all costs. And so God commands, repent. Come to Jesus. Trust him. Trust his death on the cross and resurrection to new life. Trust the God who is willing to come to die for you. And trust the God who is powerful enough to give you new life, eternal life. Because Jesus' promise is that if we trust him, then we will join him in that new life. That we will reach out for and find God. Because he has reached down into our world and has found us. Now that is God's command to you. And as I finish, I'd like to ask you to think about how you will respond to him. Uh, When the Apostle Paul had finished, uh, you'll see that we can read there that there were different reactions in verse 32. Uh, Some sneered. Now, I haven't noticed any of you doing that. If you felt like it, then thank you for being so polite. Uh, But some did. Others, though, said, we want to hear more. Well, maybe that's where you are. Others, though, decided to follow, and they believed. So to give you a chance to respond, what I'd like for us all to do is to take a couple of minutes to fill out the blue sheet that I hope you uh, got handed to you as you came in. There are pencils uh, sort of tucked into where the Bible racks are on all of the pews, so one person can hand them out. Let me explain the form to you, and then I'll give you a moment to fill it in. It really is for everyone here. Uh, You'll see that there's a question at the top about the service as a whole. That'll help us in planning future services like this, so so do think about that. Uh, But then there are four options that might be right for you. Uh, You can tick more than one if you wish. Uh, Let me mention the top two. Uh, For those who are saying, we want to hear more on this, uh, can I recommend uh, the Christianity Explored course? Uh, Rob uh, was mentioning it earlier on. It starts in a couple of weeks and it gives just a relaxed format for asking any question and finding out more about Jesus. If you tick that and put your details at the bottom, we'll be in touch with you this week to let you know everything you need to know. But for some, I hope, you'll be thinking, yes, I'm ready to obey God's command here, to turn away from the wrong ideas I've had and to start out following Jesus. Well, if that's you, then again, tick that box at the top and I'll make sure that one of us is in touch in the next couple of days just to offer you any support and help that we can. Well, thank you very much for listening.